Episode 15 of War in the Book of Mormon Part 3.5 Jaredites Early Lessons and Transference to the Nephites Welcome to War in the Book of Mormon. I am Brian Steed, and in this episode we will discuss a summary of what the people of the Book of Mormon could have learned from the translation of the Jaredite record by Mosiah II. I want to inform you that all opinions and suppositions expressed in what follows are entirely mine and in no way reflect the positions, opinions, or policies of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It may seem odd to listeners who are familiar with the structure of the Book of Mormon that we would discuss elements of the Book of Ether at this point in this podcast rather than much later. The Book of Ether is an odd book in the Book of Mormon. It is chronologically the first book, but it comes as the 14th of 15 books in the organization of the record. This is explained in the text. Mormon did not include it because he is giving an account of the people descended from Lehi. Moroni, too, includes it because he wasn't dead yet. This is a little flippant, but also a bit true. Moroni, too, finished his record initially by completing his father's personal book around 401 to 421 A.D. It then seemed as if he realized that he still had time and plates, so he abridged the the record of Ether. This was a record that was initially translated by Mosiah II back in Mosiah chapter 28. The year given for that chapter is 92 BC, and the discussion in the texts gives a sense that the translation of the record happened after Mosiah's sons departed for their mission to the Lamanites. However, there is a sense that this work may have been done much earlier. Remember that the people of Limhi returned to Zarahemla at about 120 BC. The text from Mosiah chapter 28 verses 11 to 19 gives one a sense that the translation of the record happened earlier and that Mormon was putting this in sort of like he had forgotten to earlier. He is addressing the records that Mosiah 2 passes down to Alma 2 and Mormon wanted to make sure that he identified the Jaredite record from the 24 gold plates found by Limhi's people as being among those things. The text gives a sense of urgency among the people of Mosiah 2 in verse 12. I don't think he would have waited 28 years to do this translation. The main point is that the people in the time of Mosiah 2, somewhere between 120 and 92 BC, had a translated version of the 24 plates of gold. They knew then what we are going to talk about. This is why this discussion belongs at this point in a discussion on war in the Book of Mormon. As any military commander, think about either Alma II or Moroni, would have had access to these things. I now want to quote from Mosiah chapter 28 verses 11 and 12 and 17 and 18. Therefore he, meaning Mosiah too, took the records which were engraven on the plates of brass, and also the plates of Nephi, and all the things which he had kept and preserved according to the commandments of God, after having translated and caused to be written the records which were on the plates of gold which had been found by the people of Limhi, 
which were delivered to him by the hand of Limhi. And this he did because of the great anxiety of his people, for they were desirous beyond measure to know concerning those people who had been destroyed. Now, after Mosiah had finished translating these records, behold, it gave an account of the people who were destroyed from the time that they were destroyed back to the building of the great tower, at the time the Lord confounded the language of the people, that they were scattered abroad upon all the face of the earth, yea, and even from that time back until the creation of Adam. Now this account did cause the people of Mosiah to mourn exceedingly, yea, they were filled with sorrow. Nevertheless, it gave them much knowledge in the which they did rejoice. Close quote. To reiterate, the second-to-last phrase of Mormon's comments on the Jaredite record is the reason why this episode comes at this point in our podcast series. What comes after the Zenophite period in the military developments of the Book of Mormon was shaped by this, quote, much knowledge, close quote, and therefore this location is the proper context for the Jaredite lessons and developments. Not all that appears in the Jaredite military history has direct application in the Nephite or Lamanite behaviors or actions. However, those items that do appear later in the record give further evidence of connection to the earlier tribal heritage present throughout the Old Testament and therefore is supportive of a continuity of military traditions from the biblical lands and peoples to those of the Book of Mormon. The Jaredites were an ancient people who fled from the Tower of Babel upon the confounding of the languages. Their record in the Book of Mormon is very short, and it is an abridgment by Moroni of a summary of the Jaredite people by the prophet Ether. Ether lived at the very end of the Jaredite existence, and nearly contemporary with the Mulekites' arrival in the Promised Land. The record is rapid, and very few details exist of any of the armed conflict engagements. As seen earlier, even when detail is very limited, there are still some precious nuggets. There is no timeline given in the Book of Ether, no years that allow us to say that a certain thing happened at a certain time, or a certain king ruled in a certain year. Because of this, I use a generational system to establish relative dates as generally established in Ether chapter 1 verses 1 to 32. Even this is imprecise, as you will see. Where the word descendant is used, one additional generation is skipped. In the record, they speak of kings having offspring in their old age. Depending on the context given, this chronology assumes one or more extra generations. This is also typical when sons and daughters are referred to, and then the lineal descendant is later named. This appears to mean that the sons and daughters are of one generation, and the lineal descendant of a later generation. In explanation, rather than a single generation from father to son, a father who has a son in his old age there might be as many as two or more generations between them. By these calculations, there are 59 generations. Jared being generation 1, and Ether being generation 58, and the end of the Jaredite people in generation 59. 
This is not to imply a fixed length of time, but to apply a relative dating system. For those who desire to calculate years, the generation used here is somewhere between 20 to 30 years. This means that a person has offspring in their 20th to 30th year of life. That provides some of the complexity in attempting to assign actual dates rather than relative associations. I want to present a brief summary or skeleton of events so that we can affix the later lessons and important points. Jared and his brother, who we are told elsewhere was named Mahanrai Moriankamer, lived at the time of the Tower of Babel. Their language was preserved, and they were guided by the Lord to a promised land that was north of the lands which include the majority of the Book of Mormon story. One of the sons of Jared accepted to be declared king, and so it began. The story is mostly about a succession of kings and usurpers, often, but not always, brothers, sons, or nephews of the king. The first usurpation takes place five generations into the story and followed the first dissension in the story. From that point forward, there was some conflict almost every one or two generations. The causes for war are relatively basic, as we will discuss in a few minutes. Often, kings were taken captive, and many resided in captivity for years or even generations. Ether was a descendant of the royal line, but that line had been in captivity for four generations as Ether entered the scene. The record increased in detail during the 58th and 59th generations. The battles, at that point, had become genocidal, which was the second time in the record that this occurred. The Book of Ether is a record that lasted something like 1,400 or 1,500 years and had to include a community that numbered in the tens or maybe even hundreds of thousands and maybe even millions. And it ended with only two Jaredites remaining, Ether and Coriantumr. Now, I want to address some of the things that we first learn about from the Jaredites. Remember that when I say we first learn about them, that really means that the Nephites first learned about them. We will see many of these things before we get to the Book of Ether, if we're reading the Book of Mormon from beginning to end, though that isn't true of quite a few as we shall discuss. Number 1. Nature of Jaredite Conflict the basic motivations and drive behind the conflict in the Book of Ether is different than that between the Nephites and Lamanites. The story of Nephite-Lamanite conflict is about a younger brother usurping the right to rule, stealing birthright possessions, and essentially violating the norms of behavior for a proper family relationship. This was not true for the Jaredites. Jaredites were a familial and tribal-based culture and their conflict was of the sort to be expected between parts of families. There were two separate wars of annihilation, or near annihilation. One came at the twelfth generation, and the other in the fifty-eighth to fifty-ninth generation. And it is this second war that lasted for twelve years, as recorded in Ether chapters thirteen to fifteen. 
The first war of annihilation killed an entire subcomponent of the Jaredite people and was a result of secret combinations tearing the society apart from the inside. It was the last and best known war which came at the end of the Jaredite history and at a point in the society when familial bonds between and among the entire group were mythical at best and no longer had the same force as they did earlier in the culture. For some sense of scale, 59 generations is about 1,500 years. Even with this large separation of time, the Jaredites existed in a mostly unified kingdom for much of their period and possessed the ability to work together. The unity with which the community began their existence may play a large role in contrast to the Nephite and Lamanite division which existed from the beginning between the two brothers and factions. There was no original tradition of usurpation or betrayal among the Jaredites. Their history of conflict was based on greed and secret combinations, not on competing foundation stories held by opposing groups as seen throughout the Nephite and Lamanite narratives in the Book of Mormon. The Book of Ether records a progression of conflict, not unlike the rest of the Book of Mormon. The conflicts were typically fought over greed and rights to rule between father and son or between brothers. It is suggested here that the kinship bonds were one of the main reasons for some of the peculiarities between the Jaredite and the Nephite-Lamanite conflicts discussed elsewhere. The Jaredites not only started as a unified group, but they typically fought between close relations who each sought to raise armies and fight for the right to rule. It was well into the record before a sitting king was killed as we are told in Ether chapter 9, verse 5, and that was about the twelfth generation, or something like 240 years into the Jaredite history. Think about 240 years ago. That is 1780. Even in the case of the murder of Jared, the king was killed in a murder and not a battle. In the 8th or ninth generation, a usurper was killed by a Teancum-like knight assassination by the sons of the imprisoned king, as described in Ether chapter 7, verse 18. Kings who were overthrown were usually not executed, assassinated, or murdered. Rather, they were most often taken hostage to live in captivity, sometimes for the remainder of their days, as we are told in Ether chapter 7, verse 5, and verse 17, and chapter 8, verses 2 to 4, and chapter 10, verses 14 to 15, and verses 30 to 32, and chapter 11, verse 9, and verses 18 to 23. Number 2. Prisoners in a King's House What does it mean to be a prisoner in a King's House? In the Book of Ether, it is not uncommon to read about the imprisonment of royalty, who then had children while in bondage. Prison is another word that conjures a picture in your mind. What is the picture that comes to your mind when you hear the word prison? I live in an area with the most prisons per square mile of anywhere in the world. Not a selling point for real estate, but still true. I have a lot of prison images to choose from. 
From a scriptural perspective, one might think of Joseph Smith's experience in Liberty Jail, also not far from where I live. This was a cramped and dank place with horrible living conditions. If these are your ideas of prison when you hear or read that word in the book of Ether, then I suggest the image needs to be adjusted. The maintaining of captured or usurped royalty in a gilded cage of sorts has significant roots throughout the Mediterranean ancient world. The Egyptians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans were all known for their practice of similar forms of captivity. It was relatively common even in the recent past within the Middle East. In this case, not royalty, but guests of significance held for ransom. Kings were taken captive and lived in captivity. In some cases, this captivity lasted for generations, where children were born and were raised in captivity. The Jewish historian Josephus was a leader of the Jewish rebellion of 66 AD, who was taken captive when his city was captured by the Roman army. He became an interpreter and advisor for the Roman commanders and later would write about the campaign and a relatively detailed summary of Jewish history while living in a form of captivity as a guest of the Roman Emperor. In a more recent example, during the 1990s and early 2000s in Yemen, it was relatively common for tourists traveling through a village to be taken as hostages, while the village leaders used the hostages in negotiations for greater civic improvements from the national government. In those cases, it was rare to read about violence. Typically, the hostages enjoyed Yemeni hospitality throughout. Only when the hostages tried to escape was violence resorted to. This is not to suggest benign intent, but it is worthy to note that the captivity was at least as pleasant as the lifestyle of the villagers holding the hostages. Taking kings captive in the Jaredite record began in about the 5th or 6th generations, which was still early enough in Jaredite history that intermarriage probably meant that most of these people maintained family ties of some sort, and this certainly played a part in the reticence to simply execute the overthrown monarch. Though we do not read of the Jaredite expression of the divine right of kings, we do know that the first several kings were men who reigned in righteousness and probably had the gift of prophecy. As such, one might imagine that the Jaredites developed a sense that kings were connected to God. Initially, this was because the man who held the position lived such that he was. But after decades of believing such a thing, the notion of God's favor might have become connected to the position rather than the person, and this is how the notion of a divine right of kings gets created in the first place. My point is that this may be one reason why people did not want to kill members of the royal line, because they believed they had some special connection, and whoever killed them might suffer some divine displeasure. The pattern of imprisoning royalty remained a thing until the very end, when Coriantumr was a usurper's family being chastised by the prophet Ether from the legitimate royal line who had grown up in official captivity. This also might be why Ether was spared. Yes, he fled and hid himself, but before that he was of the legitimate royal line and a prophet. 
confirming any belief that might have existed of divine favor and divine right to rule. The captivity probably meant limits on travel and possessions, but it probably did not mean confinement to a cell in a prescribed prison. It is probable that these captive nobles lived in houses and had a relative amount of freedom of movement to conduct domestic routine affairs and were probably allowed some contact with family and possibly even non-family associates. The revolutions led by these captive monarchs were more reasonable when viewed in this more lenient fashion. You would think over the generations that Jaredites would have realized that keeping the royal line alive invited future rebellion. Regardless of this, they continued the practice. Number three, armor and weapons. The first understanding of Jaredite weapons comes from the Xenophyte descriptions of the weapons they found at the battlefield. These weapons were, of course, the weapons that existed at the end of the Jaredite record, and will be addressed in that order. The first account of weapons in the record of Ether comes in the seventh generation with the story of Shul, the son of Kib, who was then a captive monarch to his son Korahor. We read about this story in Ether chapter 7, verses 7 to 10. Shul was born in captivity and had sufficient freedom to grow and be taught. He was also able to travel, and he went to the hill Ephraim, where he made swords of steel. Moroni seems to suggest that these steel swords were something a little different. It is not clear whether metal weapons were normal at this point, though later the Xenophytes described the weapons they found as follows in this quote from Mosiah chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. And behold, also, they had brought breastplates, which are large, and they are of brass and of copper, and are perfectly sound. And again they have brought swords, the hilts thereof have perished, and the blades thereof were cankered with rust. The Jaredites had breastplates made of brass and copper, and that were described as perfectly sound, implying quality and significant strength. The weapons had lost their hilts and had blades cankered with rust, which again implies metal. Other than the description of the sword of Laban in 1 Nephi chapter 4, verse 9, this is the only other time that metal is mentioned as the material component of weapons in the entire Book of Mormon. It should not be assumed that metal weapons were common. In most societies in the Western Hemisphere, they were not. For those inclined to nitpick about terms, it is true that steel was very rare in the ancient world, as it took a special process to make steel from iron, and few societies had that process. When weapons are described as being steel in the Book of Mormon, I think that they are figuratively being described rather than literally and chemically being described. The 1828 Webster's Dictionary has the literal definition but it also has a figurative definition that states the following. Figuratively, weapons, particularly offensive weapons, swords, spears, and the like, extreme hardness, as heads or hearts of steel. Close quote. This is also the first reference to a breastplate. 
Later, Moroni will fasten on a breastplate as he goes to battle or hoist the title of liberty. The term isn't used much. This is the only time that a reader is given the material of the breastplate. Later, Moroni too gives a brief statement in the time of King Lib, which is the 38th generation, about the people manufacturing, quote, all manner of weapons of war, close quote, in Ether chapter 10, verse 27, in a time of great peace among the Jaredites. Moroni, too, can give a vague description of the weapons like this because of the numerous lists of weapons provided prior to this point. He probably expects that at that point in the record, a reader would understand what he meant. Because of this context, I assume that the Jaredites had weapons similar to those previously described in the Book of Mormon, missile and melee, and probably a variety of each. The concept of creating weapons of war in a time of peace is remarkable as well, and we discussed this in some detail when talking about the Xenophites. Remember that the record of the Jaredites, quote, gave them much knowledge, close quote, when you have the Xenophites making weapons in times of peace, and then you have the Jaredites doing the same thing, this might have provided reinforcing insight. Number 4. Night Battles Ancient armies rarely conducted night operations. Anyone who has done a night hike, played games with children outdoors at night, or tried at night to gather a group of young people, during a large outdoor event because of incoming bad weather, understands the complexities created by darkness. As an army cadet, I regularly participated in night patrols without any night vision assistance, as cadets didn't warrant such technology. It is hard to function at night because human beings don't see well in the dark, and to a degree, we are solar-powered creatures. Some of the greatest discussions of the problems with ancient night operations comes from the Greek historian and general Thucydides, who described an attack at night by an Athenian army against the city-state of Syracuse on the island of Sicily. The attack went off course, and many men died because they fell off cliffs that they couldn't see. I provide this little preface to express the rarity and complexity so that when I say the following thing, it has some impact. The use of darkness to conduct conflict appears in several instances in the Book of Ether. The first was an attack on a usurper by the sons of the imprisoned king in Ether chapter 7 verse 18. The next was another case of sons of an imprisoned king attacking the usurper to regain control of the kingdom. In this instance, Ezram and Coriantumr, the sons of Omer, gave battle to their brother and usurper Jared in Ether chapter 8 verse 5. These two examples happen generations apart, thus supporting the rarity of night operations. When groups did attack at night in the ancient or early modern world, it was usually a smaller group seeking to neutralize the numerical advantage of their opponent. In those cases, the darkness and surprise combined to sow confusion in the minds of those being attacked. In the battle between the sons of Omer and again later, it was seemingly smaller forces that used this technique. The third use of darkness was when Sherid was besieged in the wilderness of Akish, 
by Coriantumr. Sherid attacked Coriantumr at night so that his army could break free of the wilderness, as we are told in Ether chapter 14, verse 5. Again, the weaker force used darkness. In all three cases, the use of darkness was done to generate surprise, providing further support to the rarity of night operations. In addition to it being dark when Sherid attacked, the army of Coriantumr was drunk, another example of alcohol playing a role in facilitating battlefield success in the Book of Mormon. 5. Murder In Episode 2, I introduced a spectrum of conflict. I mention it again here as a reminder. I ask that you imagine conflict as a continuum or a spectrum across a line of events from smaller to larger. At the small end is verbal threat, then physical threat, intimidation or coercion, theft, murder, and then raid for theft, raid for pillage, narrow conquest, general conquest, and finally genocidal conquest. This spectrum doesn't just have an increasing level of violence, but it also includes an increasing size of necessary organization. As you will note, murder sits in the middle of this spectrum, as it is the first intentional killing of another human being. Killing might occur earlier in the spectrum, but it isn't the intent of the action. Murder does not require a lot of organization. Contrary to what you see, on a lot of elaborate television series or movies. It should be interesting that murder is somewhat unusual in the early parts of the Book of Mormon. Other than the executions of Laban, Abinadi, and Noah, which are all arguable as to whether or not they constitute murder, there was no mention of murder as a technique for gaining or maintaining power among the Nephites. The Lamanites were described as loving murder in Jerem chapter 1 verse 6. King Benjamin stated that he did not allow his people to commit murder in Mosiah chapter 2 verse 13. And Zenith described the teachings of the Lamanite children as including instructions to murder Nephites in Mosiah chapter 10 verse 17. Despite these references and the apparent use of murder as a technique among the Lamanites, there are no events described in the record. The word murder is used in this discussion to describe the unlawful and non-state or social group sanctioned killing of another human being. The caveat of state or social group sanction exists because murder under sanction can be termed assassination, execution, or a part of military operations, and therefore of a different legal and spiritual nature. Personal gain is also a part of the usage of murder here. In the Book of Ether, the record includes four instances where murder was used to gain power. In Ether chapter 9 verses 6 and 27 and chapter 14 verses 9 and 10. Murder was also given as fundamental to the nature of secret combinations in Ether chapter 8 verses 16 and 23. Murder served as a way to rid rulers of unwanted reminders, especially when prophets called wicked kingdoms to repentance, as in Ether chapter 9, verse 29. This subject, as it relates to secret combinations, will be discussed in greater depth in a later episode. 
we will see stories that use murder in the Nephite and Lamanite story, but they all come after the reception of the Jaredite record. That is the reason why these things are discussed in this episode. I don't think the Jaredite record inspired Nephites to commit murder. However, it may have inspired certain uses of murder as a form of political advancement, which comes primarily in our next discussion. Number 6. Secret Combinations We will deal with secret combinations in an episode all to itself much later in our series. That is because we will deal with it as it becomes prominent in Nephite culture, which is the order in which the reader of the Book of Mormon experiences the phenomenon. I do want to say a couple of things now that will be addressed in detail later. There will be some repetition between what I say now and what I say later. But as I hope that you will hear, this is just that important. An understanding of and the ways to combat secret combinations may just be the single most important thing taught by the Book of Mormon other than Mormon's thesis of preparing us to come to Christ. That is because one cannot come to Christ in or through secret combination, and secret combinations will be the way that Satan opposes our route to Christ in the 21st century. Secret combination is a phrase that is often used in discussing the Book of Mormon, but it is unclear what it means or meant. It is clear that Mormon did not use it for a specific group or type of organization throughout the record, as the original group to which he applied the title had to grow and change from one of simple assassination to a more broad-based organization. Secret combination is the antithesis of Nephi 1's comment that the Lord God worketh not in darkness. In 2 Nephi chapter 26, verse 23, secret combinations are works done in darkness, attempting to avoid both the light of day and the light of Christ. Alma too warned his son Helaman too about secret combinations as he taught him about the interpreters and their role in bringing to light those things that people seek to keep secret. He commanded his son to, and I quote, retain all their oaths and their covenants and their agreements in their secret abominations, and only their wickedness and their murders and their abominations shall ye make known unto the people. Close quote from Alma chapter 37, verses 27 and 29. Mormon maintained that policy to teach only the consequences of the secret combinations without providing the details of how to enter them. Intent is at the heart of secret combinations. Murder alone does not make something a secret combination. Linked with the evil or illegal actions are oaths and signs. There is a very telling statement made by Mormon in Helaman chapter 6 verse 17 when he says, quote, Therefore they began to set their hearts upon their riches, yea, they began to seek to get gain, that they might be lifted up one above another. Therefore they began to commit secret murders, and to rob and to plunder, that they might get gain. Close quote. Pride, or the desire to set oneself above one's neighbor, is one of the primary motivators for these combinations. 
Once again, secret combinations are the antithesis of Mormon's emphasis on unity. Mormon made abundantly clear that all of these groups work for the same employer, Satan, when he says in Helaman chapter 6, verses 29 and 30, and I quote, Yea, it is that same being who put it into the heart of Gadianton to still carry on the work of darkness and of secret murder, and he has brought it forth from the beginning of man even down to this time. And behold, it is he who is the author of all sin, and behold, he doth carry on his works of darkness and secret murder, and doth hand down their plots and their oaths and their covenants and their plans of awful wickedness from generation to generation, according as he can get hold upon the hearts of the children of men. Close quote. Much of this pattern was further described in Ether chapter 8, verses 13 to 16, as Jared II, the daughter of Jared II, and Achish passed on the secrets of old, one to another, and then used these oaths and secret signs and covenants to commit murder in order to gain power and authority. The robbers sought to live a false and alternative law and lifestyle. They united, not for the sake of strength, but for the opportunity to live the ideal vanity, to be happy in sin. When I was a young man, my father took me to listen to President Ezra Taft Benson, who was then the president of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, and he was speaking to a large group in Tacoma, Washington. During his address, President Benson said that if we wanted to understand what the world would be like in the times preceding Jesus' second coming, that we needed to study the Book of Mormon times immediately preceding his coming to the Nephites. In other words, Third Nephi is a type and shadow for the last days. I know this is early in our series. I ask that you stay with me on this. The times before Christ's second coming will be like the times before the coming of the Savior in Third Nephi. What were those times like? The enemy was no longer the Lamanites. The enemy of those who lived a gospel culture were a group called the Gadianton robbers. The culture of the Gadianton robbers was the cause of the destruction of both the Nephites and the Jaredites, as stated by the prophet Moroni in Ether chapter 8, verse 21. It is important to note that if not stopped, they will be the cause of our own destruction. Mormon made very clear the danger posed by the secret combinations within the Book of Mormon when he said, and I quote from Helaman chapter 2, verse 13, And behold, in the end of this book ye shall see that this Gadianton did prove the overthrow, yea, almost the entire destruction of the people of Nephi. Close quote. Modern-day Gadianton robbers, like their ancient predecessors, see themselves as the right way. I want to use the Islamic State, or ISIS, as an example of a modern-day Gadianton robber group. The narrative of the Islamic State, or ISIS, is that they are the army of the righteous, or the army of light, fighting armies of darkness, or Roman crusaders as they call us, in the name of God. To put words in their mouths, they are not simply a caliphate, but they are the final caliphate before the end of the world with the responsibility of preparing the community of believers and the world for those monumental final days. 
ISIS references prophetic end-of-days statements about the Romans showing up in a place called Dabak in northern Syria, which is about 300 miles north of an obscure set of ruins that most Christians call Armageddon, and that there the faithful will fight a battle that will bring in the day of resurrection or day of judgment. They further elaborate on this and other statements to develop a message about the army of righteousness that rises up in Asham, or Syria, and spreads to Mesopotamia. They wear black and carry black flags. They conquer as the campaign of the army of the righteous continues. It will ebb and flow. They will win and lose. And the army, as it appears in Dabak, will be losing with the army becoming smaller and smaller. At this time, Jesus will arrive, and he will lead the army of the righteous to defeat the armies of Gog, Magog, and the Dajjal, or Antichrist, to usher in the final judgment. As is true with Christianity, where end-of-days beliefs vary from one denomination and sect to another, so it is with Islam. There is no universally agreed-upon end-of-days sequence. ISIS has cobbled together a story and placed themselves in the position of the leading role. I do not want to imply that they do not believe this story. I think they do. They believe very strongly in the fact that they are this army. Even though ISIS sells itself as an army of light, they really weave a story of darkness. In this way, they are a lot like the stormtroopers of Star Wars fame. They wear white, but they fight for darkness. ISIS is the best example of a modern-day Gadiant and robber army. As I am writing and publishing this in 2020, I want to let people know that there are a lot of Gadiant and robber organizations, both in Western countries and in a variety of forms. This isn't about political parties or ideologies, as modern Gadiant robbers exist within every ideology and every part of the political spectrum. We will cover this in much greater detail down the road. It is interesting that I am originally posting this episode on 11 September 2020, 19 years after one of the most successful Gadiant and robber attacks in terms of lives lost and monetary damage done in human history. 7. Resource Competition The Book of Ether is an abridgment of a summary, and therefore it presents events in very compressed space. This allows some ability to see cause and effect. Resource competition is generally accepted as a root cause of human and animal conflict. There are four instances when the Jaredites are described as becoming exceedingly numerous, spreading over the face of the land or covering the whole face of the land. The use of these phrases would suggest large populations and might lead a reader to believe there was resource competition as a result. Respectively, these references occur in the 7th, 20th, 25th, and 39th generations. In each case, within a generation of such statements, there was an overthrow of the government, either through usurpation or through popular revolt. The reasons for the revolts and overthrows are linked to obedience to the commandments of God and not issues of resources in the record, but it is an intriguing pattern. I would suggest that the two things can be true at once. 
this can be an issue of resources and an issue of obedience to God and his commandments. 8. Siege Coriantumr laid siege to the wilderness of Achish in Ether chapter 14 verse 5. This was the first use of such a term in the Book of Mormon. The idea of surrounding a location to force submission through deprivation of resources or outside support was not new in history, but it was not identified before this in the Book of Mormon. We will see the Nephites conducting something like sieges, though they are more like blockades in the Amalekiahite war that follows. We will see the Gadiant robbers laying siege to the city of Zarahemla in what I call the Combined Settlement in the Gadiant Robber War in 3 Nephi. The first time the word is used in the Book of Mormon, and I ask you to remember that I am using the timing of the translation and not the appearance of the Book of Ether in the current printed edition as my timing here, is in the story of the Jaredites and the siege of the wilderness of Akish. Sieges can be both passive and active. The more active, the faster they go. The more active, the more risks, and typically the more casualties for the besieging force. The fact that the siege in question was of a wilderness, it is less likely that it was an active siege. Active sieges involve sapping that seeks to weaken enemy defensive positions by digging underneath walls, for example, and attempts to either go through and or over the walls. Passive sieges are still taxing as they require cutting off all possibility of outside assistance. Armies laying siege face great difficulties of enemy breakouts, as we see in the case of Gilead defeating Coriantumr and effectively breaking out at Akish. They also face the problems of discipline and disease that occur any time an army sits in a place for a long time. The reason that Gilead could break out is that Coriantumr had to spread out his army to lay siege to the wilderness. They had to cover all of the possible ways to support Gilead. On the other hand, Gilead could concentrate on the one area through which they desired to escape, as they did. As a support, Coriantumr's army was also drunk. How was the breakout and the drunkenness coordinated? We don't know, but I would suggest that it might have been. 9. Arts of War I quote from Ether chapter 13, verse 16, And now Coriantumr, having studied himself in all the arts of war and all the cunning of the world, wherefore he gave battle unto them who sought to destroy him. Close quote. This is the only reference to someone studying the arts of war in the entire Book of Mormon. There are more than 100 references to conflict at some level, but only one reference to studying about conflict. It is probable that Moroni is trying to communicate something that does not appear elsewhere. The use of the word wherefore in this reference connotes a linkage. Coriantumr's studying allowed him to give battle. As was mentioned in episode 14, cunning and strategy can be used as near synonyms. Coriantumr understood stratagems. From where did Coriantumr gather the material he used to study? It must have come from an internal Jaredite record, a large plate of the Jaredites, in a manner of speaking, the record of the secular affairs of the people. Coriantumr must have learned from the previous battles between and among his ancestors. 
It is understandable why he was so confident in his ability and why the last period of twelve nearly continuous years of fighting saw some of the most significant additions to tactics. I would suggest that both Moroni and Mormon studied the arts of war, but this is my supposition only, as there is no similar statement about their efforts. We are told that Moroni was a man of perfect understanding, but we are not told what that meant with respect to temporal or military things. Everything we are given in describing his character in Alma chapter 48 verses 11 through 17 connects to spiritual capabilities. 10. Tribal Warfare As the battles progressed in the last years of the Jaredite people, there are references in Ether chapter 13 verse 25 to every man with his band, which leads to questions about meaning. It might suggest a form of tribalism as the larger society broke apart, much as occurred just prior to the Savior's appearance to the Nephites, as we are told in 3 Nephi chapter 7, verses 11 to 14. Later, as the Jaredite armies gathered people to themselves, it may be useful to view the divisions as being based on familial relationships, real and possibly mythical. I want to describe a term that is useful in a 2020 sense, and that is populations, rather than race or races. There are populations that share things in common like genetic material and culture. These are not necessarily synonymous with race, as race is often linked solely to skin pigmentation or false senses of historical or genetic connections. Race might be more mythology than reality, but populations can be both mythology and reality. It is in this vein that I speak of real and mythological. This is one way to understand why the hatreds became so intense. Each family and or population was enduring offenses that were inflicted upon their own family members and there was little room for forgiveness in such an environment. When Shiz received an epistle of possible surrender from Coriantumr, he required personal vengeance, similar to ancient blood feuds, as we are told in Ether chapter 15, verse 5. Within this last great battle, there ceased to be a kingdom, and instead there existed a tribal confederation or a population confederation. These two tribal groups or populations fought each other following ancient blood feud behaviors, demanding recompense for each death until there was only one person left. What a sad and serious warning of the danger of tribalism in any era. 11. Total War and Use of Terror In the end, as we are told primarily in Ether chapters 14 and 15, the Jaredite society did not support the final war, but that final and all-encompassing war totally subsumed the society. The armies gathered everyone and everything in an area into their service. This was the only way that the armies could support themselves. The armies also practiced organized terror through the killing of women and children and the complete destruction of cities. As armies gathered strength, they also slaughtered all who would not ally themselves with a particular army. This was an example of a type of you are either with us or against us thinking. 
The carnage was so complete that the dead were not buried. The rotting bodies, lack of any societal structures, farming, and the associated disease common to all large groupings of fighters were supporting causes for the enormous casualties of more than 2 million people given in Ether chapter 15 verse 2, in addition to the slaughter of the battlefield. The armies fought several multi-day battles, which seemed unusual for the Nephite-Lamanite record to this point, and was uncommon even within the Jaredite record. Even after a short period of recovery, the armies continued to meet in battle, but the battles were nearly continuous. A four-year break in conflict occurred to allow for acquiring resources, and then the armies resumed to the finish. There are few details of what happened or how it happened. However, one doesn't get a sense of strategy. The organization seemed to fight in mass formations and in a heroic style until they were all gone. The battles prior to and following the four-year break represented a change in higher-level strategy. There were no breaks. There was no campaigning season. This was all war, all the time. The intent was to break the will and exterminate the opponent. This was a rare occurrence in history, where one side would not capitulate or the other would not accept the capitulation. This was not linked to the hatreds and pride of two men, but the entire society was filled with it, as identified when the people of Coriantumr refused to submit to Shiz in Ether chapter 15, verse 6. Summary and Conclusion the elements of the Jaredite way of war have been identified. The Nephites had more of the Jaredite record than currently exists in the Book of Ether, and therefore probably had more details of some of the events and tactics used than modern readers have. What of all of this was then transferred to the Nephite conflict experience? It is difficult to make direct correlations and state that something had direct lineage from the Jaredites through the 24 gold plates to the Nephites. The statements that follow indicate possibilities and not certainties because of the challenge of detailed linkage within the limited information. Most of the following could begin with the phrase, it is interesting to note as there are many items that seem to bear similarities and therefore probably have a linkage to those experiences. Those items that are clearly unrelated will also be identified to suggest what has some Jaredite ancestry and what remains Nephite. First, the nature of Nephite-Lamanite conflict underwent a remarkable change following this period. This can be linked to Nephite dissenters who inspired a more aggressive, and completely dominating view of conflict among the Lamanites. It is possible that this new view was also inspired by those who knew something of the Jaredite story. Second, armor was known among the Nephites before the Jaredite record, but it took a giant step forward after it. The Nephites were able to completely overwhelm the Lamanites with the quantity and quality of armor. Third, Secret combinations were apparently unknown in all their evil and complexity among the Nephites before the Jaredite record. It was within a few years of the translation of this record that priestcrafts, kingmen, and other dissenter groups began to appear. Fourth, sieges became more common among the Nephites and were used extensively by Moroni. 
It seems that the study of the arts of war took a leap forward in the generations following the translation of the record. Despite all of these similarities, the Nephites conducted a greater degree of defensive warfare than the Jaredites seemed to. This may be a result of the abridgment of the Book of Ether, or it may be something unique to the Nephites. Both Moroni and Mormon place significant emphasis on defensive fortifications and defensive tactics. Regardless of the direct nature of information transference, the Nephite way of war changed significantly in the generation following the receipt of the new record. I want to suggest that understanding the dynamics of societal self-destruction is useful in the 21st century when it seems like every country and every continent faces multiple groups seeking to tear down society, destroy the existing civilization, and create something new and supposedly utopian in its place. The Book of Ether gives a stern warning to those so inclined. This usually only leads to societal collapse and catastrophic pain and suffering. Please read the Book of Ether and see if you agree with this warning. The next part of this podcast addresses the changes in organization that accompany the many changes in politics, tactics, and strategy discussed in this part. We will see the change from a king to a judge, from rule of the sovereign to the sovereignty of the law from a warrior leader to a chief captain. We will also see the single greatest description of the greatest form of societal influence and change, missionaries teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. I invite you to reach out and ask questions and send comments to me on Facebook at War in the Book of Mormon or at warinthebookofmormon at gmail.com. All one word, War in the Book of Mormon at gmail.com Until next time.